0: How do you deal with disruption when your life is interrupted by something, maybe four inches of snow overnight? When, you're, when the plan for your day ends up changing just drastically, you wake up and you have a completely different day than you thought you were going to have? Or when an event happens in your life that impacts you in a really significant way? How do you respond in those moments? The dictionary defines disruption. It's pretty simple. It's just a disturbance which interrupts an event, activity, or a process. With that as the definition, uh, the reality is we deal with disruptions every single day. Uh, We carry around little disruption devices, right? Our phones ping at us throughout the day. Text messages, emails, phone calls. They disrupt us. You know, maybe people in our lives come to us with needs that they have. A hurt child who who needs a Band-Aid or a person in our life who has a crisis and who who needs us to come alongside them and and help them. Maybe we just encounter situations that just disrupt our way of life. We get a new job. We relocate to another state. Uh, We change our rhythms. We change our routines just because of how life has changed. See, disruptions happen all the time. And that word disruption actually today in in just our culture, it's kind of become a buzzword. You know, disruption is one of the highest compliments that can be paid to an individual or a company uh, just nowadays. Some of the most successful companies in the world are the ones who disrupted how things were always done. Brett McCracken is a writer for the Gospel Coalition, and he talks about this in his article entitled Disrupting Ourselves to Death. This is what he says. The list of disruptive companies, game changers, who rewrote the rules of their respective industries is long and growing. Uber disrupted the taxi industry, Airbnb, the hotel industry, CrossFit, the fitness industry, Spotify, the music industry, Netflix, the movie industry, and so forth. If there is a recipe for entrepreneurial success in the 21st century, disruption seems to be the key ingredient. Even with disruption being a buzzword— disruptions in and of themselves, they're actually morally neutral. When you look at that definition of a disturbance which interrupts an event, activity, or process, there aren't any additional words that narrow down that meaning. It's not negative or it's positive, right? Disruption can be good or bad. It can have very little impact on our life or disruption can alter our life significantly. But our reaction to the disruption varies based on how much our life changes in that moment. We're in a series here at Riverview called The Sticky Gospel, where we're going through Mark's gospel account of Jesus' life and ministry. And in the verses that we find ourselves in today, we are going to see how Jesus himself is a disruption. His very presence in the world interrupted events, interrupted activities and processes that the Jewish people were living by. In this window of text, we're going to see Jesus have a lot of interactions with the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were a group of religious leaders, Jewish religious leaders, and they prided themselves on their way of life. They viewed the law that God had given them as the most important thing, as the Jewish people often would do. But they viewed it that way so much so that the Pharisees would add additional rules and regulations to the law so they wouldn't even get close to breaking it. If they were around today— on the highway, when they see the 70-mile-an-hour sign, they would go 55, okay? Not fun to drive behind those people, right? Because they don't even want to get close to breaking the law. But when Jesus arrived, the Pharisees saw him as an unwelcome interruption to their way of life. Because Jesus didn't live like they did. He didn't follow all the additional rules. Sometimes Jesus actually disagreed completely, with what the Pharisees believed and how they were living. Because Jesus was a disruption. A good and necessary disruption. So if you have a Bible, uh, you can go and open up to Mark chapter 2. We're going to be in Mark chapter 2, going to Mark chapter 3 today. The verses will be on the screen for you. But we're going to be starting in Mark chapter 2, verse 18. It says this, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. People came and asked him, why do John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast, but your disciples do not fast? So we're picking up from last week. If you remember how the passage ended last week, Jesus was at a dinner party. Uh, this is something that he often did. He went to parties. He, he hung out with, with a lot of people. But Jesus was feasting at this particular place with people that the Pharisees shook their head at. People that the Pharisees would never share a table with. So Jesus is there having dinner, but then some people after that ask him a question, and it has to do with food. It's not about feasting, but it's about fasting. Jesus, why don't your disciples fast like John's disciples do or like the Pharisees do? Now, many of us, when we hear that word fasting, we may actually think of that 2023 from just a health perspective side. Like there's a lot of diet trends that maybe some of us have tried of intermittent fasting, right? Where you eat for an hour a day and then you don't eat for 23 hours. And it's not fun. Um, But that's like we think about fasting and that's really what it is. It's going without something for a certain length of time. And now in this context, a fast, that was part of the Jewish law. This was part of their life. On one day a year, their law on the Day of Atonement commanded that the Jewish people were to fast. And they were to fast fast as an act of remembrance, of repentance. They were to go without food and water and work to repent of their sins on that day. But the Pharisees had added additional rules to that law that they had. Some Pharisees and religious leaders voluntarily fasted twice a week. So to go from fasting once a day to 104 times a year. it's a big change. Twice a week, 52 weeks. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus kind of highlights how you shouldn't fast like them. Because when the, the Pharisees would fast, they'd be gloomy. They'd be like, I'm so hungry. Like they would just act. They'd whine about it. And Jesus is like, don't fast like them. But in this day, Jesus is asked, why don't your disciples fast like the Pharisees do? And Jesus answers them, but he answers them in a unique way. He starts telling them stories. Three specific aspects of their life and culture that would have made sense to them. And we see this in verse 19. Look at how he answers them. He says this. Jesus said, The wedding guests cannot fast while the groom is with them. Can they? As long as they have the groom with them, they cannot fast. But the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them. And then they will fast on that day. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new patch pulls away from the old cloth and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wine skins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is lost as well as the skins. No, new wine is put into fresh wine skins. Okay, so when we see Jesus answer, it doesn't seem very clear. (laughs) Right? It's like, I feel like I'm more confused after what you just said. But see, for the people in the first century, this all would have made sense. Jesus is talking about three things that were just front and center of their daily life. He talks about weddings, he talks about clothes, and he talks about wine. First, he talks about weddings. Weddings were an incredibly joyful event to the Jewish people, even more so than weddings are today. Now, weddings are a fun event right? They're, they're great to go to. Um, but today, what you do is you run out of place, you have your ceremony, you have dinner, you hire a DJ who usually talks way too much, and, and, and then you have a reception, right? It's all about half of a day. You're like, that was a good thing. In, in first century Jewish culture, weddings all, like, often lasted a week. Week-long celebration, Friends, family, celebrating this new couple, this new life they were walking into. One commentator I read wrote uh, this week, a wedding wedding feast was the most vivid picture of joy and happiness in that culture. No one would mourn at a wedding. No one would be sad. So Jesus explains his first answer is, look, my disciples aren't fasting because I am with them. I'm the groom. In other biblical texts, we see how the church, those who have put their faith in Christ, were often called the bride of Christ. We see in Ephesians chapter 5 how the relationship between a husband and a wife is actually a picture of the relationship Jesus has with the church. So Jesus says, my disciples aren't mourning because the groom is with them. But he does mention that a time will come when they will fast. And that is going to be when the groom is, Is taken from them. This is the first time in the Gospel of Mark we see Jesus begin to talk about this day where he's going to be taken. There will be a time in the future. But until then, instead of fasting, instead of mourning and grieving, the disciples are enjoying the presence of the groom. They are with Jesus, he's with them. Right after this, Jesus shares two more pictures to communicate the truth. First, he starts talking about clothes. And what he says is, look, no one sews a new cloth on an old garment. In the first century, whenever there was a rip or a tear in the fabric, what you would do is you put a patch over it. But if you put a patch that wasn't shrunk and then you washed it, it would make the initial problem worse. It would just rip a bigger hole. You don't do that. And then Jesus talks about wine. He talks about wineskins, which isn't something that we may be familiar with, but this is a picture of what Jesus would have been talking about. You know, back then, uh, they didn't have glass wine bottles or Boda boxes, <laughs> right, to transport their vino around. So what they would do is they would carry it in wineskins like this. This is kind of a modernized version. Sometimes they would take a whole animal, turn the animal inside out, sew it, and have a wineskin. It was, it, was, it was pretty cool. But what would happen with a new wineskin, you would put new wine into it. And what happens with wine is it ferments. It expands. Science, right? It's pretty cool. Um, but what would happen is that wineskin would expand too. And as the wine remained in the skin, that wineskin would harden. And it would keep that shape. So if you were to put new wine into an old wineskin, it would explode. You would never do that. I feel like I actually got to witness this scientific uh, explanation at the West Side venue just a few months ago. Uh, every October, we have a Fall Fest event. Uh, here And it's a great event, apple cider, donuts, all that stuff. But what happened this year was a gallon of apple cider was left in the back of the fridge. Uh, <laughs> some of you know where this is going. Um, because we all know when things get put in the back of the fridge, they stay there for eternity. <laughs> right? You don't ever take them out. But what happened was we looked and we're like, oh, that's, that's months old. And so we took it out, and the gallon of apple cider was a basketball, it was huge rock solid yeah so i had no idea what to do so i'm happy no one else was there because this is what i did i'm just going to tell you i put it on the counter and i got a knife i was like fencing with the gallon i was like yeah i got it and then it just went It just all the gas came out right but what happened after the gas came out was that gallon didn't change size it was permanently disfigured um and if i would have tried to put like more cider than that if I hadn't punctured it, like bad idea. You don't do that because the same thing happens with a wineskin. Don't know why I need to tell you that story, but it's fun. Okay, so here's the thing. Jesus, when he answers these people, he's talking to them in a way that they understand. He's sharing pictures with them because they would have been familiar to his audience. He talks about weddings. He talks about clothes. He talks about wine. And he's communicating the same thing in each story. I am introducing a way of life that is new, that is better. It doesn't fit into the old way of life for you. Your rigid observation to the law, adding more and more rules to this law, it's different than the life I'm inviting you to. A life of following me is way different than what these people were doing. See, how Jesus taught and what he taught, they were a disruption, weren't they? They interrupted the beliefs and practices of those that he had come to rescue from their sins. And we see this continue on in the very next verse. Chapter 3, he and his disciples, or I'm sorry, verse 23, he and his disciples are traveling. It says this, On the Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to make their way, picking some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, Why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So when they would say that, what they're essentially saying is like, why are they breaking the law? They're not doing what they should be. So what's happening on this day, Jesus and his disciples are traveling through some grain fields on the Sabbath. We've heard about the Sabbath a little bit in this series. Uh, The Sabbath day for the Jewish person was Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. And it was one day a week they were commanded to cease from working to rest, and to worship. And for a Jewish person, honoring the Sabbath, that was really at like the apex of of honoring the law. So much so, in fact, that the Pharisees added some rules to this one, too. But they didn't add one. They didn't add two. They added 39 rules to the Sabbath. They made a list, 39 things you do not do on the Sabbath because you'd be breaking the law. One of those things was reaping, cutting or gathering food. So when they see the disciples walking in the grain fields, grabbing a snack, they're like, Lawbreakers, you're reaping. Why are you doing that? Jesus responds, verse 25. He said to them, Have you never read? Which to the Pharisees was a jab, because they read, they knew. The law. They knew the history. Have you never read what David and those who were with him did when he was in need and hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests, and also gave some to his companions? Then he told them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So then the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So right after Jesus uses some objects from their culture to communicate the truth, this time he tells them a story, a story they should have known, a historical event. And this event's recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 through 6, if you want to read that this week. But, but hundreds of years before, David was fleeing from King Saul because he, in, in, he, he and his men were in dire need of food, and they found themselves at a temple. And David finds the priest, and he, and he asks for the bread that's set aside for the worship uh, rituals that they would do, and the thing about this bread was, it only the priests could eat it, or only those that were consecrated or set apart. But the priest gives it to David that day because they are in need. It, it's, their life is more valuable than what this re, this worship kind of regulation was, and that's why Jesus communicates this truth with this story because he's telling the Pharisees here a fundamental truth about the law. Human life is more valuable than the law. It's more valuable than bread. It's more valuable than picking grain on the Sabbath. And he makes this even more explicit in the next thing he says. He says, look, the Sabbath was made for man. Not man for the Sabbath. This day a week that you've made in this extensive list of don't do this, don't do that 39 times, that is a gift to you. It wasn't meant to be a burden. It wasn't meant to, to add more stress to your life. It was to relieve you of that stress, of the weekly burden of working and providing. It was a day to worship. But again, Jesus disrupts their way of life by sharing with them how their view of the Sabbath was wrong. This was meant to give you life, not take it from you. This day that has become a burden where you're walking every day wondering if you're breaking the law. That was meant to be a blessing to you. And Jesus tells them that. And we see Jesus go one step further on this particular Sabbath day when he enters the synagogue and he demonstrates this very truth. Chapter 3, verse 1. Jesus entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a shriveled hand. In order to accuse him, they were watching him closely To see whether they would heal him on the Sabbath. So, this is the Pharisees. Now they're looking at Jesus and they're thinking, we want him to do something wrong because we want to catch him. We want to show everyone he's a lawbreaker. He told the man with the shriveled hand, Stand before us. Then he said to them, This is Jesus saying, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil? To save life or to kill? But they were silent. After looking around around at them with anger, and he was grieved at the hardness of their hearts, and he told the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Immediately the Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians against him how they might kill Jesus. This is the first time the Pharisees have been this upset, this incensed, that they want to kill Jesus. Jesus. See, on the Sabbath, people would go and they would worship at at the synagogue. And on this particular day, Jesus found a man whose hand was shriveled. We don't get any backstory as to how that happened or or why it happened, just that it was true. And Jesus finds this man. He's like, hey, stand up, which is probably one of our greatest fears, (laughs) right? To be made the center of attention uh, in in a situation like that. But, But this man does it. And then Jesus asks the people a question. Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil? To save life or to kill? And what happens? The people cry out to do good, to save life. It's the obvious answer. And Jesus is like, You're finally getting it. Like, no, that's not what happens. Jesus asks an obvious question Is it lawful to do good? On the Sabbath, or to do evil, to save life, or to kill. And they're silent. The religious leaders stare back at him and they don't say a word. And we see Jesus respond in a way he has not yet in the Gospel of Mark. He is angry and he's grieved. And he's grieved at the hardness of their hearts. How their hearts couldn't see and understand how it was lawful, how it was good to restore this man, to heal, to bring life. This is what the law was about. Flourishing. Worship and love of God. And the religious leaders were missing it. Over and over again. So Jesus, angry and grieved, he looks at the man and he says, stretch out your hand. And he does. This man is healed. His life is changed. And instead of celebrating, the Pharisee says, he needs to die. Again and again, Jesus is showing everyone what he's come to do bring restoration, to offer people life in him, to invite people to a way of life that the law should have pointed them to. Jesus is the one who was perfect. He fulfilled the law, and he came to save sinners. But that message, Jesus' very presence, was disruptive. You know, sometimes I think our ways of life need to be disrupted. How we're living, what we're believing, what we're thinking about, and how that's often out of alignment with the way of life God calls us to. Because the thing about disruptions is they make you confront the truth. You know, this past summer, my life was disrupted uh, in a pretty significant way. Um, I was just sitting at home uh, on the couch with my kids, and out of the blue, I felt off. Like my body, I was like, what's going on? I didn't, I didn't just go for a run, I didn't just work out, but I just didn't feel right. And then hours later, my Apple Watch disrupted me with a message. Your heart is showing signs of an irregular rhythm suggestive of atrial fibrillation. And I saw that message, and I had no idea what to think. What does this mean? (laughs) What do I do? Who do I call? Do I need to call anybody? Like, I I just didn't know. Talked to my family, something that's just kind of in our family history, you know? Others in my family have the same thing. I called my family doctor the next day, met with a cardiologist, and I I eventually had a procedure that got my heart back a normal rhythm and as I think back to that day I remember feeling a lot of emotions um, just about that disruption of my life anger frustration sadness worry anxiety that difficult question that we always ask when things happen in our life that we just why why what now And as some time has passed, some of those emotions are still there. Because you know as well as I do, we don't always get the black and white answer uh, to the question that we wrestle with in our life. But with time and with prayer, I can honestly say other emotions have come since that disruption. Gratitude and thankfulness, wonder even, You know, gratitude that this situation was not unknown to God. That my, my need to draw near to him, to trust him with this has just been so evident in my life. Thankfulness for God's provision of, of medical care. Wonder at the technology in this little device, <laughs> right, that told me my heart was doing this. That disruption, that little ping of this watch. It revealed my need. And it made me confront the truth. It was a good and necessary disruption. This is the kind of disruption Jesus is for us, for the world. He's good and he's necessary. Because the world needs a Savior, we need rescue. From our sin. His very life and presence in the world interrupted people and events and activities and processes and ways of worship because he is the one God has sent to rescue us from our sin. All those things Jesus said in those passages were invitations to a life God has made us for. You don't mourn at a wedding. You have joy when the groom is with you. You don't put new patches on old clothes. You don't put new wine in old wineskins. The Sabbath was made for you, for man, not man for the Sabbath. To all the people that Jesus was interacting with, they were a disruption to it. All these statements were a disruption to their way of life, but they were good and they were necessary, but some of them did not see That, that way. Because they were an invitation to see Jesus for who he truly was. The one God had sent. At the end of Mark chapter 3, Jesus makes one final disruptive statement. Mark chapter 3, verse 31. His mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him and told him, look, your mother, your brothers, and your sisters are outside looking for you are asking for you. Jesus replied to them, "Who are my mother and my brothers?" Looking at those sitting in a circle around him, he said, "Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother." You know, when we look at what Jesus says here on the surface, it can kind of feel like he's kind of speaking negatively about family, but that's actually not what he's doing. Jesus is kind of elevating those relationships. He's sharing how faith in him leads to walking in his ways. How faith in Christ unites us with him as family. If you're a follower of Jesus, Jesus is your big brother. You are united in faith with him. And with everyone else in the world who follows him. This is a beautiful unity we experience There's a beautiful unity we experience in this room as followers of Christ when we worship together every weekend. Whoever does the will of God, Jesus says, that's my brother and my sister and my mother. This is the way of life Jesus is talking about. One of faith in who he is. Continued obedience to the life that he calls us to. Earlier on in chapter two, we see Jesus share for the first time That as the groom, he's going to be taken from his disciples. And on the night before that happens, in John chapter 14, he's talking with his disciples, and he begins talking with them about how this is going to happen, how he's going to go away, and how he's going to prepare a place for his disciples. But Thomas, one of the disciples, says, Jesus, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? How can we get to you? How can we be with you if we don't know? then Jesus says this in John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Everything that Jesus had said, everything that he had done, all the miracles, all the healings, all the teachings, they were to communicate this very truth. It is only through me that you will experience the fullness of life that God offers you. I am the way. It's me. No one comes to the Father except through me. Have you responded in faith to what Jesus offers you, that he is the only way? Forgiveness of sins, fullness of life that are found in him. See, Christianity today in 2023, it is a disruptive way of life. Believing in what the word of God says. Believing that exclusive statement Jesus made about being the only way to the Father. Living by these truths will put you at odds with what our world and culture often believe and live by. It will happen Brett McCracken writes about this in that same article I referenced earlier from the Gospel Coalition. He writes this, Christianity is disruptive today for the same reasons it was disruptive 100 and 500 and 2,000 years ago. Because throughout human history, sinful human hearts and sin-clouded human minds have chosen paths that are neither good for them nor for their society. Only the work of Christ can free us from slavery to following the course of this world, as it says in Ephesians 2.2. And set us on a radically new path of good works, which it talks about in Ephesians 2, verse 10. The gospel is radical in every age, and the practices of the church are countercultural and disruptive in every context. I love that. The gospel, the good news that Jesus came to the world, that he lived the sinless life we could not live, that he died on a cross for the sins of humanity. The actions, the thoughts, and the words that come from our sinful hearts and our sin-clouded minds. Then he resurrected from the dead, conquering sin and Satan and death. That message will always be radical. In every age, in every time period, the church, the bride of Christ... What we do on Sunday mornings, what we do throughout the week in community, how we serve people, how we share the gospel with people, how we love them, that will always be countercultural and disruptive. And that is how it should be. Because our world needs the Savior. Only the work of Christ can free us from the slavery of following the course. Of this world and set us on a radically new path of faith and obedience to Him. As followers of Jesus today, we are called to the same life and the same mission that He had to be a disruptive presence in the lives of people by inviting them to follow Jesus, to believe what the Word of God says to experience forgiveness of sin and life in his name. As we continue on through the gospel of Mark for the next few months, Jesus is going to disrupt us. What we see him do, what we hear him teach, how we see him live, all those things are going to interrupt and challenge and disturb sometimes what we believe or how we are living. And when that happens, how are you going to respond? What kind of disruption is Jesus going to be for you? Choose to see those disruptions as a gift. Because Jesus is better. Who he is, what he did, The good news of the gospel, all of those things are good and necessary disruptions. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do, I thank you for your word. How, God, you chose to give us something that just from when we are living and where we're living, God, we can have your word in our pocket we can carry it around with us all the time and God it's in your word that we we see you we see who you are we see what you love what you desire and it's God it's in your word that we see Jesus how he came to the world And was a disruption. God, as we continue to read your word, as we continue to go about our days, I pray that your word disrupts us. God, maybe it's a good disruption where we see how you are moving us toward Christ in ways that we never thought. Or maybe they're gonna be difficult in that we're way farther than we thought, farther away than we thought we, we would be. But God, I pray that those disruptions lead us to love you more, to trust you more, and to share you more with the world who needs you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.